what a special treat it is for me to come back and visit and see several familiar faces and several new ones. Um, my wife and I have such strong, fond, wonderful memories of the years we were at East Ridge Baptist, and we both still would testify this was such a unique community that loved us well and we loved much. And so the years that we were, were here are just imprinted on us and have formed us with such joy and gratitude. And I'm so thankful that Kempis is here, a friend for many years, and thankful for the blessing that um, you have, a man who's uh, deeply committed to God's Word, and just what a blessing it is to see it continue here at East Ridge. So, so thankful. Um, as Derek mentioned, I had been here before. I'm actually from Kent. This is hometown for me. Um, I mentioned in the first service, it's a true story, I, I was actually born in the back room of a house just a couple of, well, blocks, maybe a mile or two down the road from here. After I said that, I thought, well, that sounds kind of weird, born in the back room of a house. Anyway, it was a home birth. It was normal. Don't worry. Um, but anyway, God can redeem people out of Kent, Covington, Black Diamond, all those places where I grew up. And I'm thankful to be back here and to see that Eastridge is still being a light and salt in this community and pray that that continues. I, I so appreciate us singing, Go Tell It on the Mountains. What a great song to start with to remind us of what we ought to have been doing through 2023, our job description, if you will, and what we intend to do better and more in 2024. The Great Commission to tell others about Christ. But there are many greats in Scripture, aren't they? There's the Great Commitment. The great commitment, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You must know who he is and how he's revealed himself. There is, of course, the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, of course, the great commission, go therefore. This morning, I want to introduce you to the great invitation. The great invitation. So grab your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, we see the great invitation. Isaiah is written by, of course, Isaiah. And it was written 700 years before Christ. And it is all about Christ. In fact, the most quoted book about the Messiah in the New Testament comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied for over 50 years through several kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and the one who tradition says cut him in half, Manasseh, the worst king of Judah's history. And with all of their pride and pomp and circumstance and good times and bad times, the bottom line is, though the dates, details, and dead people have changed, some things just never change. Change the names, and you have a commentary on today's political pride, social idolatry, and aggressive hostility to the Word of God and the God of the Word. There's nothing new under the sun. But Isaiah, in the midst of that crooked generation, 700 years before Christ, speaks to us today, 2,000 years after Christ, with the same invitation he gave then. An invitation to an island of hope, just on the other side of Repentance Bridge if you will. And this invitation comes to us with boldness, with clarity, 
with compassion and great poetry. This is a favorite chapter of mine, and I'm excited to walk through it with you today as we look at the great invitation of God's Word. Look down at your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 55. Let's start in verse 1. I'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll march through it together. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now listen close. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign, which will not be cut off. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, again, we just come to you. We want to pause right now and just acknowledge your sovereignty, acknowledge your goodness, acknowledge your lordship, and thank you for your word that you've given to us, preserved for us, and called us to this morning, that we would come under your authority, your kingship, your love and compassion, and hear your invitation. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And so in gratitude, we walk through this text this morning asking that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond and mouths to proclaim your greatness. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see with this text, it begins with an invitation that is both personal and free. We all know what an invitation is, right? We've all received them from time to time. You might have received an invitation last week to Christmas, and maybe you came back this week. Welcome. You might have received an invitation years ago and come here, and you're still here. Praise the Lord. You might have received an invitation to a wedding, a dinner, an event, or some opportunity. Really, an invitation is a request, a call, an appeal to come 
Some opportunities, well, they bring excitement and other and other invitations, they bring a little bit of skepticism, don't they? Some invitations we get in the mail and we put them on the fridge. We're excited about it. Other invitations go in the trash. Junk mail, we throw it away. But this morning we have an invitation from Isaiah 55. You just heard it. This is God's personal invitation to you. God crafted this for you. Moments ago, as I read this text, it landed in the mailbox of your ears and hopefully your heart. God has mail for you, an invitation. But this invitation is a little different than others, isn't it? Because, well, it comes from God. (laughs) And because of who he is, we have to receive his invitation, not as an option, but a command. A summons, really. God is calling you to hear this invitation. Now, you might be tempted and think to yourself, well, this was written 700 years before Christ. We're 2,000 years after Christ. This is the most published, most read, most translated book in all the world. Everybody reads it. You just opened it this morning and read it to everybody here. Why is it for me? It's for you. Just as Isaiah wrote it to each individual who would hear Listen and attend to. So God is speaking right now through this text to each one of us. This invitation is different. It's not general. Though I read it to all, God is speaking to you personally to give you a free invitation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's not for you. Secondly, not only is it from God, so it comes with authority and it's personal, but it comes with a lot of instruction. If you listened as I read and heard, the first two and a half verses have 12 commands. Have you ever received an invitation like that? Please come to my wedding. Please, come. No, come, come. Please come. Come to my wedding. And you're like, wow. You'd be like, they really are going overboard. They must really want me to, what? Come. So God says at the beginning of Isaiah 55, come, come, buy, eat, it's for free, come. And so we must receive it this way as the God of the universe calling to us, repeatedly asking us and saying, come, but you still must decide, is this legit or is this junk mail? Is this for me or do I really don't care? Now, as you look to decide on the legitimacy of this invitation, Let me just put this out there and and give you a few things that you ought to know about the invitation. And first, you'll see that you've got an outline that's a little extensive. I spend more time in the classroom than the pulpit, so you've got blanks to fill in. Homework, I'll check back with you later. But look at the first one. First, it's for the thirsty and the poor. This invitation is personal and free, but it's for the thirsty and the poor. You see that, right? Everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. You who have no money, you who are without money, that is your poor, come. The biblical imagery here can't be lost. Let me say it another way. For those that are desperate and destitute, come. For those that are spiritually dehydrated and dead, come. The water here represents life. We see that again in verse 3. The money here Well, the money is interesting. Come and buy without money. The money to purchase that God requires is actually righteousness. 
which is kind of a problem because none of us are born with that and none of us have the ability to earn that. So God says, come and spend that which you don't have. But he tells us it's for free. It's not going to cost you anything that I haven't already paid. And you can find it with him. Righteousness. None of us have it. None of us have the potential to earn it. So we go to him to get it. Now, the temptation at this point, let me just pause for a second. The temptation is to think to yourself, oh, I've heard this text. I've heard this before. This is for the unbelievers who come into the church by accident or by invitation. And they hear this is for unbelievers. This is for believers. This is for sinners. This is for saints. This is calling to the thirsty who are done with the world, done with the flesh and deceived enough by the devil. But it's also for the saints who sometimes become dehydrated, distracted, and disobedient. This call to come is for all of us here today. And that tells us about the beauty of Isaiah 55 and the gospel itself. Those who confess their complete lack of righteousness, this is for you. Those who acknowledge their total bankruptcy of goodness, those who realize they are dehydrated of life and dead to God, this is for you. These are the ones who get the invitation, hear the invitation, and respond with excitement, right? These are the thirsty. And so we pause and say, are you thirsty? Are you really thirsty? Have you come thirsty this morning for what the world cannot provide? Whether you've come to Christ or don't know Christ, we have times where... We get dehydrated. We must always be thirsty. Thirsty. And what God provides for us is not only water, but milk, wine, and bread at this great feast of salvation that he puts out there and says, come, please come. Jesus would tell us later in the greatest sermon ever preached that if you receive this call, obey this call, that you will be blessed by this call. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he starts with the very first words and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are you blessed? Because you're now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And in that citizenship, you have abundance. And you also have this, the second point, you find satisfaction in life. You're blessed because you find satisfaction in life with Jesus, in Christ, in his kingdom. Well, this water gives that to us. And the water is throughout Scripture a common metaphor. Isaiah actually starts in chapter, th- chapter 12, verse 3, and he equates the waters with salvation. He says, on that day, the day of your salvation, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. In verse 3 of this passage, he equates it again. He says, come to me, listen, that you might live, drink these waters of life. This theme is throughout the Bible. Jesus picks up on this theme, meets the woman at the well in John 4, and he says, come to me, and I will give you living waters, he says. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again, and it will spring up to eternal life. In John 7, he stands up at the great feast, and Jesus cries out, the text says, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Throughout the scriptures, we see that waters equal life. God gives it for free if you're willing to come and recognize your need. 
At the end of the Scriptures, Revelation 21, we read again, Jesus revealing, it is done. It's over. It's the end. Complete. What's He say? It's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. And He will be my Son and I will be His God. This invitation that we see in Isaiah 55 is not a chapter we pull out and say, that was interesting. It is the call of God from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. Come. Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The promise that fulfills the invitation from Isaiah 55, Jesus is proclaiming and preaching. Satisfied with what? What will you be satisfied with? Ultimately satisfied in and with Jesus. We find satisfaction in Him. Listen to these words of George Whitfield. Years of loving, obeying, and preaching Christ, and he's still thirsty. He says, My soul is a thirst for Christ, yea, even for the righteousness of Christ. When shall I come to appear before the presence of my God and the righteousness of Christ? I want nothing but Christ, nothing but Christ. Give me only Christ. Oh, dear God, give me Christ. Then I will be satisfied. We as believers sometimes lose our thirst, don't we? And we get tempted to be satisfied with the little sips of what the world has to offer. That's deception. Now, you could be tempted to think to yourself, I'm doing just fine. I get by in the world. It gets me enough. But are you really? Are you really satisfied? God asks in Isaiah 55, verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Jesus said He's the bread of life. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? He's reasoning with you and trying to tell you, come, come, come. Now let me reach you with your own logic. Why do we spend our life on these things that we're thirsty for God and try to fill with other things? Whether it's alcohol, drugs, food, entertainment, relationships, job, anything else that we try to find our identity with and clutters up, distracts us from our relationship with God fleshly and worldly indulgences that give temporary pleasure in the worst of ways, but never satisfy. Honestly, God has built you to be dissatisfied, discontent, and uncomfortable in this world and only find contentment, satisfaction, and comfort in Him. That's how you're made. So if you feel dissatisfied with what the world is offering you, it makes sense. That's how you were made. You see, if you don't thirst for God, it's simply because you don't want Him. But ultimately, you'll never find satisfaction outside of Him. Now, the great thing about this invitation is it's personal and free for the thirsty and poor who will find satisfaction in life, but also those who come, and here's the third point there, Letter C, those who come will stay forever. You probably haven't received an invitation like that, have you? You got one in a wedding invitation in the mail? Oh, it's at two o'clock. 
What time is it over? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Maybe you were invited to East Ridge this morning. Oh, what time does it start? Uh, 8.30, 11.15? Great. When's it over? Never. <laughs> You're going to stay forever. What kind of invitation is that? It's an everlasting promise. Look at verses 3 through 5. You can see he says, according to, he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. An everlasting covenant, a promise that lasts forever. Jesus would say, nobody can take you out of my hands. I will not lose one of you. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us you're sealed for the day of redemption. Romans chapter 8 says that nothing at all can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jude 24 tells us, now to him who is able and willing to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God can do this. He will keep you. What a wonderful blessing it is that you are saved, sealed, and secured forever in Jesus Christ. And some of you might have thought to yourself, well, you know, I would become a Christian. I would obey the call. I would accept the invitation, except, you know, it's kind of a permanent thing. I think that, you know, if I do that, I'll I'll kind of be stuck. I'll, I'll feel trapped. You're right. You will. Because Christ loses none of his children. And to be stuck in Christ, to not be able to escape, is a blessing, a privilege, and a great confidence that every one of us need. Indeed, you will be kept forever. There is no escape. You have died to yourself. You've forsaken the world. You've clung to Christ and find identity, hope, purpose in him alone. That's the invitation. It is for you if you're thirsty and poor. By accepting it, you will find satisfaction in life. And you can never lose it. What a great invitation that is. However, this invitation is an opportunity that is also conditional and temporary. It's conditional and temporary. Verses 6 through 9 will point this out for us. But first, let me just say, it requires, point A, it requires an immediate response. Seek the Lord, what? While he may be found. Seek him while he is near. The fact is, every time God reveals himself, it demands a response because he's God. (laughs) And it demands an immediate response because he's God and because of your immediate need. You might have raised your children this way as well. You tell them, delayed obedience is, you got it. Delayed obedience is disobedience because I'm your parent. I know what's best for you. And this is needful right now. And so God does the same thing. He gives us an invitation and says, this is immediate, a need that you need right now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. To ignore the sovereign king of the universe by not obeying or ignoring is rebellion. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, this invitation has an expiration date on it. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. It was written 700 years before Christ. We're 2,000 years after Christ. 
I mean, it's 2,700 years old and you're telling me like, hurry up right now today? Yes. Let us not presume on the goodness and kindness and mercy of God that he would send a savior 2,000 years ago to live the life that you would not and die the death that you could not to raise from the grave to secure a life that he offered in Isaiah 55 and continues to offer you today. Yes, there's an expiration date on it. Only because God is not willing that any would perish, but judgment will come. Every time we don't obey, we rebel. In Isaiah chapter 1, he starts his book by saying this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. And then he says in the next verse, And if you consent and obey, you'll eat from the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The blessings of an invitation and the warning of letting it expire right before your eyes. Revelation 21 that I read a moment ago, the next verse says that after he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, this is, this is the end. He then says, but for those who are unbelieving, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. And then just a few verses later, he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. It requires an immediate response. What is that immediate response? Well, the next point in your outline is this. It requires a complete repentance. A complete repentance. As you look at most invitations, let's pick a wedding invitation again. You receive it in the mail and it says RSVP, which I guess is French. I had to look this up. Respondez, s'il vous plaît. That was really bad, but you know what I'm talking about. RSVP. Well, God is sending you an invitation from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. And it doesn't say RSVP. It says R-E-P-E-N-T. Some of you are fast spellers. (laughs) And that's the call. Complete repentance. You see that in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. That's his way of describing repentance. Turning from sin and self and turning to God and life in Jesus Christ. Repentance, to clarify, is not just when we stop sinning. Some people stop getting drunk because they realize it's bad for their health and it's going to kill them. That doesn't mean they've become a Christian and they're following God. That's just common sense or advice from a doctor. Repentance is when you stop wanting to sin because you have an overwhelming hunger and thirst and desire to please Christ because He's your Savior. Repentance is returning to the Lord, forsaking your sinful ways, or as the acronym goes, F-Faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust Him. And just as we said before, delayed obedience is disobedience, so also partial obedience is disobedience. You wouldn't let your kids get away with it, would you? Take out the trash. Why is it in the driveway? Isn't it supposed to be? Yeah, I made it halfway. Well, that is not the assignment. (laughs) God says the same thing. He wants us to completely forsake sin and self and completely embrace and trust Him. That is repentance. 
To say it another way, going back to our invitation illustration, this is an invitation to a funeral. Yours. God invites you to come and die. And on that same invitation, as you read a little lower, it's also a wedding. God invites you to come and die and come and live. That's repentance. Have you RSVP'd? Have you R-E-P-E-N-T'd? God is calling all of us to our own funeral, our own wedding, but everlasting life because he loves us. The only reason to accept this invitation is because you're thirsty for forgiveness. You're spiritually thirsty and you recognize you're spiritually dead or just dehydrated and you must return to the Lord. But this invitation is requiring an immediate response, requires a complete repentance, but it pays big rewards. Letter C, it rewards with a full pardon. A full pardon. Picking it up in verse 7, halfway through, and he will have compassion on him and to our God. And he will abundantly pardon. I like the way that John Piper describes this forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is God's way of removing everything that keeps you from enjoying him completely. Forgiveness is God's way of removing everything that keeps you from enjoying him completely. It's as if you're at a desk, a table, and you've got it cluttered up with all of your idols and fun, sinful things. And God comes in and says, you're mine. Follow me. And wipes off the table. Now find joy, peace, and life. And we have to decide at that moment. It's all been paid for. It's all been cleared. There's nothing that's keeping me from enjoying him completely, but I really like this. And I enjoyed that. And I'm sure he'll be fine with this one too. And we begin to clutter it up. But God promises, in fact, calls for a full pardon of our sin. Not one of your sins follows you into Christ. They've all been paid for. What a glorious promise and reality and truth that is. He has compassion. He abundantly pardons. And what does he pardon? He pardons us from our thoughts and our ways. From everything that's going on in your head and your heart that nobody else knows about, but you do, and God certainly does. And all of those things that you do say and you do do that you regret and others see, God says all of that. Your thoughts and your ways, pardoned. My thoughts and my ways, I'm putting on you. Now that's an exchange we can't pass up. That's an invitation you don't want to miss. So we must listen, seek, obey. Those are God's words, not mine. How do we do this? Well, we repent, right? Completely. We turn to him. We accept this pardon. And then we live a life we are, where we are completely and fully saturating ourselves with the word of God. Turning aside from sin, putting it behind us, turning to Christ and embracing him alone. Imagine, if you will, that sin came in a package with a label on it. And you pick it up off the shelf and you look at it. Hmm. Dietary value, zero. 
Nutritional factor, zero. In fact, right at the bottom it says, by consuming this product, you will die eternally. You think to yourself, I'm not going to eat that. Or at least I hope we would say that. And for those of us in Christ, the same holds true. We see it on the shelf. Sin tempts us. We, we get closer. We kind of look. We look again. And there we go. And we pick it up. And it says what? Christ died to save you from this product. Would you still eat it? Would you still consume it? God's invitation calls us to a full repentance. A full obedience that, praise the Lord, is secured in Christ. Unfortunately, the modern day church and many Christians have have grown up in a, a shallow Christianity, if you will. Or, as I like to describe it, cotton candy Christianity, bubblegum theology, and Red Bull worship. <laughs> they have a Christianity that dissolves in their mouth, a theology that they chew on but never really consume. And they prefer the worship that hypes them up and lets them down, hypes them up and. Le- we need to have a, a diet on the Word of God. God demands more from us and desires more for us than this. So we must discern and determine our daily diet of the Word of God. Feeding on, washing and saturating. Derek mentioned a minute ago about the Bible reading starting tomorrow. Can you do that? Can you pick up God's Word every day and say, Dear God, I'm thirsty. Or, Dear God, I'm not thirsty. Please help me with both of those. (laughs) Have conversations about it. Watch the music you listen to, the movies you listen to watch and all of the things that are part of your diet make god's word a daily intake that is meaty healthy sweet high in calories lots of gluten and all that other stuff okay that's exaggerated but you get the idea something that you chew on a lot digest slowly and it feeds your bones with life god says take all you want eat all you take and come back for more Being a Christian requires a significant commitment to God's Word. And so you can see point three in your outline says God's Word is supernaturally transformational. God's Word is supernaturally transformational. We see that beginning in verse 10. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so, or in the same way, My word will be which goes forth from my mouth. In the same way that moisture comes down, hits the ground, stuff grows. God says the same thing about his word. And God's word being supernaturally transformational because, first, because it's inspired. You see that there in verse 11, right? So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It's inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God, spoken by God, from the heart, mind, mouth of God to you. He doesn't make accidents. He doesn't talk just to hear himself. He talks for you. It has great impact on all things. The cornerstone of what we believe about and obey in the word of God comes from this fact. God spoke. This is the cornerstone of all other truths. 
But God's Word is supernaturally transformational, not only because it's inspired, but also because it's powerful. Back to verse 11. It will not return to me empty. God's Word is powerful. It has changed the course of history. It has changed nations. Nations have gone against war with one another. It can change you. God's Word has the power to change individuals. It will not return to him empty. Why? Because it's living and active. The seed of God's Word is living and active. And when you take it in your ears, take it in your eyes, it changes you because it's powerful. And third, because it is authoritative. He says again in verse 11, 11, without accomplishing what I desire. But who desires? What God desires. His authority. Why can't God's word accomplish what I want? Because it's not my word, it's his word. Why can't we decide what God's word accomplishes? Well, because God said his word will accomplish only what he wants. Because it's inspired from his mouth. It has his power and it carries his authority. And the fact of the matter is, the one thing that God's word never does is nothing. You get that, right? God's word never just goes out and disappears. You're hearing God's word today and it is doing something. For some, it's softening your heart. For some, it's informing your mind that your hands might be about his work. For some, it's callousing your conscience through resistance and suppression. God's word is always accomplishing something. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul would say to the Thessalonians, I praise God for you that when I wrote to you, you did not receive it as the word of man, but as the word of God, which it is, which accomplishes its work in you who believe. Qualification, those who believe and have received it are changed by it in the best of ways. God's word is supernaturally transformational because it's inspired, because it's powerful, because it's authoritative, and fourthly, because it's infallible. We see that at the end of verse 11. It will succeed, or it doesn't return to him without succeeding, in the matter for which he sent it. Infallible simply means it will not fail at what God sent it to accomplish. It is infallible. It will accomplish what God desires. As we look through church history and you read a variety of biographies, you would make note of various different believers, preachers, commentators, those who love Jesus, who were changed by the word of God and would point back to a text. Charles Spurgeon says it was Isaiah 45, 22. Martin Luther, it was Habakkuk 2, 4. George Whitfield, it was John 3, 3. John Wesley, it was 1 Timothy 1, 15. John Knox, it was John 17, 3. You. Has God's word pierced you yet? Are you thirsty? It doesn't return to him empty, ever. God's word is powerful, authoritative, infallible. But it begs the question, to do what? What's it going to do? What will it not fail to produce? Well, let me give you a list here. The last points on your outline to say it this way. It brings us joy and peace. God's word, the seed of God's word reigning down on us 
for the believer brings joy and peace. You see it there. Verse 12, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. As the rain and the snow come down, it'll accomplish God's purpose. And you who believe find joy and peace. That is the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace. Secondly, it causes worship and praise. The seed of God's word sown on your heart will produce worship and praise. Let me just say it this way. Each of us were created for worship. In fact, all of creation was made for worship. God designed everything to reveal his glory, testify of his nature, affirm his character, and that includes us. And so it produces in us joy and peace as we have relationship with him and worship and praise as we exercise that activity and gratitude for him. But there's another one here that I want you to be especially attentive to. Third, it changes our nature and nurture. God's word changes our nature and our nurture. We see that here in verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. You see, the problem is right now, it snows and it rains and the water hits the ground and what comes up? Well, stuff grows. But some of the stuff, it ain't good stuff. (laughs) Why is that? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us, right? In the midst of the curse, God says the ground will no longer produce easily. The only thing that it'll easily produce is what? Thorns, thistles. God promised in Genesis 3 that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. Now remember that. Well, let's jump back this way. There are many spiritual realities that are reflected in physical ways. A physical representation of a spiritual reality. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden... It wasn't just say, eh, you don't deserve this house, get out. It was representative of the spiritual reality of their broken relationship with God. We can no longer abide together. Rabbit trail, that's why Exodus 25 verse 8 is so significant. I will dwell among you. It was the first time since Genesis. That was an awesome invitation. The invitation stands for Isaiah 55. But that spiritual reality is reflected in that physical manifestation in the same way with thorns and thistles. Sure, we see thorns and thistles out here in the greenery and as we drive around, but it's also the thorns and thistles of your own heart, your own life. Your heart naturally and by nurture produces thorns of hostility and conflict, gossip and dissension with creation, with one another, and ultimately with our God. And for Isaiah to give us this promise, I should say God to give us this promise through Isaiah that thorn bushes will not come up, but a cypress will. A myrtle, I mean, a nettle will not come up, but a myrtle will. How significant is that? How can that be? That can be because of this. Throughout Scripture, we see thorns are described as that which is hostile. Person to person, nation to nation. Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel and all of the nations around. Even Paul would say a messenger from Satan is like a thorn in my flesh. And all of the representations we see, 
Jesus would said, you would know them by their fruits. Figs won't grow up amidst thorns, right? It's either one or the other. But the reality is, when Jesus died on the cross, they put on him a crown of thorns. That was not a crown to acknowledge his majesty. That was a crown to acknowledge him taking the curse that we belong, that we belong to or belongs to us. Jesus taking the crown of thorns was representative of the curse of all creation, the curse that you have of death. Jesus took that. And so when Isaiah closes this chapter, this invitation, with this description, understand that something is happening, something is being offered that started in Genesis, goes to Revelation, but speaks to them in eight, sorry, BC 700 and is talking to you right now because many of us have those same thorns and thistles in our lives, in our relationships. And he calls you to this, be changed by nature. Your very heart that naturally produces thorns and thistles against the world, against others and against God, I'll change that heart and create something beautiful, wonderful, and useful and green. And your nurture, all of those sins that you've tended to, cared for, nurtured in your life, you don't need those anymore. When you repent from self and sin and turn to God and Jesus Christ, you no longer have that nature and all of those sins that you've nurtured, that you've labored yourself with, others have labeled you with, you continue to practice, are dead on the cross and you're alive in Christ. What a great invitation this is that God would give us this promise. Jesus took the thorns of sin's curse and consequences, the thorns of sin's separation and hostility, the thorns of sin's power today and punishment tomorrow. We can be forgiven of our thorns and thistles and we now have the power to forgive others of theirs because we totally get it. This is the great invitation of Isaiah 55. We just got through Christmas and sang, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But verse 3 says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And the curse is found right here and all around. That Jesus died, that this invitation might be free to you to me, personally, today. Now let me close with this. The last outline, last blank on your outline is this. God's word also accomplishes, well, it's a witness for or against you. It is a witness, a memorial, says verse 13, an everlasting sign it says, that will not be cut off. That is, everlasting will never end. What's that mean? If you take this invitation, it's yours and yours forever, and it will testify, your life will testify of God's grace and sufficiency. But if you choose not to accept the invitation, it is also an everlasting testimony. On that day, God will say, why should I let you into my heaven? And you will say, because you said you would, and Jesus secured it for me. Or you'll say, I just didn't believe it or didn't want to when you... And God will say, these are both a sign and a testimony. 
what you've chosen to do in life, you can't back out of in death. It's everlasting. What a wonderful testimony it is that God would give to us such an invitation. It's urgent, but it's sufficient. We can trust him. God's invitation is really a decree. It's also his good design. And it's also his loving desire for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Oh God, you are good. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that those that have come thirsty today um, have been fed by being reminded and stirred up by the water of life, the living water that is you and comes from you. And I pray, Father, that anyone who knows you today and is maybe a bit dehydrated would return to your word, return to you, forsake sin, and embrace you for the great, sufficient God you are. We thank you for this salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the one who lived in our place, died in our place, and rose that we might have life with you forever. We love you, Lord God, because you first loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.